Morning, everybody. I'm not sure we have many examples of faithful people. You know, it used to be a time where people took pride and when they made a commitment, you knew that they were going to do it. That's not always true today. I can think of several examples. For example, um, concerning couples that make a vow of faithfulness. And, you know, they talk about the seven-year itch. Well, statistically, there really is such a thing. A lot of people, before they hit year seven, they've divorced. Or take executives, for example. They make commitments. They make contractual obligations. And they say they're going to do this in order to make a profit. Well, when they find out it's not going to be as profitable as they thought, sometimes they start to squirm to get out of those commitments. God is so different. God is so different than people today because he is the faithful God. You can count on what he says. When God says he's going to do something, he does it. Now think about God's commitments to Israel and to Abraham and to Moses and other people. Guess what? He did exactly what he said he was going to do. And friends, what he did for them, he will do for you. He will be your faithful God. You can count on his faithfulness. We've just read a difficult passage. At the beginning of Romans chapter 3, he's reflecting back on the others. But I want to do a review to get us to where we are now. In chapter 1, Paul introduced his ministry and his message. And he gave us the theme. He introduced it in chapter 1. It is righteousness. God is going to uh, show his righteousness through Christ. In the coming chapters, that will become clear. But for now, he's got to show the contrast. He's got to show why we need God's righteousness. And the reason we need God's righteousness is because we are not righteous. And so Paul focuses on the Gentiles in the end of chapter 1. And he blasts them for all the unrighteous things they are doing. And then in chapter 2, he focuses on the Jew and the counterfeit obedience that they demonstrate. And so now, as he deals in chapter 3, he's going to introduce an objector, somebody who complains about the things that Paul has just been saying. And picture, if you will, a, a Jew who has, has heard these things and, and disagrees with what Paul has said. So what I want to do right now is focus in on those things and give you two contrasts that we will see in today's message. Two contrasts between humility, our humanity rather, and God, between us and God. First contrast, we are faithless, but God is faithful. God is faithful, amen? All right, so as I mentioned, there is an objector, a challenger, and so let's focus on that. Um, he begins, what advantage then? And before I get into that, we might, thinking that, we might be thinking that Paul is saying this. But friends, that's not the case. Paul is not saying these words. Rather, he's using an, a challenger 
to voice what he's heard as he's been teaching about the grace of God and the righteousness of God and, and people's need. And so he's been getting these objections. And so he focuses in on the Jewish challengers here and what they might object to. Now, in the last session, if you were here last week, if you remember, Paul said, you, you Jewish people, we Jewish people have the law. But you guys think that because you have the law, you're righteous. But the problem is, the problem is, just like us, the problem is they didn't keep the law. Apart from Jesus Christ, how many people in the history of the world have kept the law? Zero. But they were saying, hey, we're righteous. We've got the law. So they're saying, Paul, if what you're saying is true, and we're Jews, what advantage then is there being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Paul, you've just blasted the Jewish people. So now Paul kind of takes a detour here in this chapter, and he, he, uh, he cites these objectors, and he gives the objection that he has heard in numerous times before. The question is, is there any advantage to being Jewish? And Paul says, much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. Now, there are lots of things that Paul could have said that he and other Jews had as advantages for being Jews. They are God's chosen people. But he picks one and he focuses in on it. One of the advantages of being Jewish is that God sent the prophets to them. God sent Moses to them. And through the Spirit of God, these prophets and Moses, these leaders, they gave the word of God to the Jewish people. But the Jewish people had come in the first century to conclude that, hey, we've got the law, we're righteous just because we possess it. And it's kind of like, you know, somebody has a, a Bible on their coffee table. That makes them righteous, right? And, and Paul's trying to focus in on that and correct this thinking. Imagine if we lose power in this building and the church auditorium goes up and there's a flame in here and smoke begins to fill the room. The lights are out, the smoke is on, and so you begin to get to the point where you can't see. And somebody needs to have a flashlight to guide people to the exit. And there is one person with a flashlight. Okay? I'm the only person that has a flashlight in this room, and I need to guide you to that exit. But you know what I'm doing? Instead, I'm taking my flashlight and I'm focusing it in on the Bible and I'm studying the intricacies of Scripture. Is that what I should be doing? No. Scripture teaches us that I have an obligation. And the Jews had an obligation. Their obligation is to reveal God to the nations around them. And they have failed in this. They have thought that the word of God was for them and for them only. And those Gentiles, they're just dogs. We don't want to have anything to do with them. So first century Judaism had left 
what God wanted them to do. He wanted them to be a light to the world, and they had failed. And so Paul is trying to teach them they have a need. They have a need. And ultimately, he's going to show how Jesus meets that need. By reading the Word of God from infancy, parents have given a blessing to their children. If you have children, if you have read the Word of God to them, if you have taken opportunities to teach them the Word of God, if you have taught your children the things that they should do, you know, Deuteronomy 6 talks about, you know, as you sit down, as you stand up, as you're going in and out, teach your children. If you had children and you did that, I compliment you. God desires for you as parents to guide your children. Please don't buy into the lie that uh, we'll let them decide. We, we don't want to influence them. We'll let them make up their mind about religion. No, why? Because if you don't do it, I can guarantee you there are people who will seek to influence children and guide them away from the Lord. So you as parents, just like the Jews of old, you have the word of God. You have the opportunity to teach and to instruct children and to be a light and to guide them. And so I encourage you as parents to do that. And if your grandparents, you have a great opportunity. Look for ways to leverage that for the good of your kids and your grandkids. Well, now we come back to the challenger. And here's what the challenger says next. And Paul's heard it all before. He's just playing this back for us. The challenger says, but what if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? And there are some Christians that think that God has done exactly that. That because the Jewish people at a certain point were unfaithful in the first century, they think that God is totally done with Israel, will never have anything to do with them again. But friends, this passage teaches us that even though men and women are unfaithful, God is faithful. Amen. He is. He's faithful. Even when we fail, and who doesn't? Even when we fail, God remains faithful. It's a beautiful thing. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness. No. This is truly amazing. God cannot deny himself. When his people fail him, he will not. Indeed, he cannot fail to do as he has promised. He is faithful to his chosen people. We see this very clearly in relationship to the believer today. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, wow, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now look at verse 4, where Paul answers the challenger's question. 
will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? And Paul says, not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. (laughs) This phrase, not at all, becomes a very important phrase in this book. It's the Greek, me genoito. This is the first of 10 uses of this phrase. And it has been translated various ways. Here it's not not at all. It's been translated, may it never be. Oh, that seems a little weak. Absolutely not in the NET translation. By no means in the ESV. God forbid King James Version. In East Texas, they say, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh. Not at all. This is a phrase of outrage. Paul responds with both guns loaded to the notion that God could or ever would be unfaithful. Paul goes on. So that you, God, may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. God's justice is put on trial. And this quote is from Psalm 51, verse 4, which goes, Against you, you only, God, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Psalm 51 is David's humble cry to God. He sinned against God. He has disobeyed God. It's his sin with Bathsheba. And David goes to God with a humble heart. And he realizes that his sin is ultimately against God. And Paul is saying that no matter who you are, even if you're king, now David had a, a high esteem for the most part among Israel. But even the king, when he did wrong, was judged. And so we can see God is faithful to do what he says. To bless, he will bless. To judge, he will judge. God is always faithful. He cannot deny who he is. This is his character. Now, notice that even though David isn't an adulterer, God forgave him. Isn't that a beautiful thing? He even did more to cover up his sin. He got desperate, and desperate people do crazy things. And so, ultimately, he had Bathsheba's husband put to death to cover up his sin. God gave him time to repent. But he didn't. He was stuck in this. Sometimes we get stuck in holding on to, I've got to cover up my sin. But it's always transparent to God. And so God sends Nathan the prophet to David. And Nathan tells him a story. A story about injustice. And it triggered something in David. I think it was designed to do so. And David, after he hears that, that man surely deserves to die not knowing the story was about him. 
And what did Nathan say? You're the man. This is you, David. And David broke down. He couldn't hide any longer. He realized his sin was clear to God. And the only path forward was what God wanted all along for him to repent and to come to God humbly and confess his sin. And that's what we should do. My friends, let me ask you, do you think there's something in your life that God could never forgive? Sometimes people think that. Sometimes think if God knew this secret in my life, he could never, wait a minute, God knows everything, right? And he sent Jesus to die for those things so that our sins are covered. But now we're in his family and God wants his family to walk righteously. And so when we sin, he wants us to confess, just to say the same thing. That's what the word means, confess, say the same thing, homologeo, say the same thing. God, I'm in agreement with you. You were right all along. I didn't follow your way, and I'm realizing I was wrong. God forgives us. Don't let the devil lie to you and tell you I've done something so bad, God could never forgive it. If God forgave David, an adulterer slash murderer, there's no sin he can't forgive if we humbly go to him. Now, If a person today accepts the Lord Jesus Christ, if he turns to the Son of God for forgiveness and salvation and then sins egregiously and God does nail him to the wall, does judge him, is God unrighteous? Is God unrighteous for judging him? That's kind of the question here. Imagine, if you will, a good Christian elderly lady and she has walked with the Lord all these years. But then she cheats on her taxes. She lies, she deceives, she commits fraud. Is God unrighteous to send somebody to steal her purse? No. God does judge. Now, if we repent and turn to him, he's likely to not judge or at least judge less. But if we hold it in our hearts, we don't turn to him God finds a way to deal with sin. Now, you might think, Paul, this is a good place for you to stop. I mean, this is a difficult diversion. Paul, don't you realize there are young Christian children in the church at Rome? They won't understand this. Paul, don't you realize that there are young Christians that are not that deep and they can't understand what you're saying in these eight verses? Don't you think this is a good time to... Get off of this, Paul, and go back to your main point. But Paul has some things he wants to say. He has heard these objections, and he wants to deal with them. And so he presses ahead. One key area in this section is God is faithful. One speaker put his slant on it, saying it this way. Now watch this. It is the faithfulness of God 
that allows epistemology to model ontology. Clear as mud. <laughs> All right, let's say it instead this way. God is faithful yesterday, today, tomorrow, always. Would you say that with me? God is faithful yesterday, today, tomorrow, always. If you believe that, would you say, that's true? That's true. Amen. Bless you. He is faithful. But what if life is really beating you down? Now, you may not be there now, but if you live long enough, you will walk through the valley of the shadow. Things like cancer or finances fall apart or a relationship that sticks a knife in your gut. What do you do then? Where is God's faithfulness now? Might be our response. We can counter. Life is not always fair, but God is always faithful. Would you say that with me? Life is not always fair, but God is always faithful. I've been in a place, in a church, where I was working, and the people that were over me and around me, oh, it got ugly. It got ugly, all right? I've been there. Most of you have been there. You've been at difficult times. But God is faithful, and he will bring you through those times. And he will use those times to shape us and to cause us to learn to trust in him better and to learn to be more patient. And who knows what he will develop as a result of you going through those hard times. It's difficult. I'm not denying that. But if you trust him, if you hold on to God, you will see he is faithful. Well, now we come to the second truth about us and God. We are unrighteous, but God is righteous. God is righteous. Well, here's our friend, the challenger again. Verse 5. But Paul, if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? And then Paul says, I'm using a human argument. Paul says, I speak as a man, kata anthropon. After the manner of men, I use this mode of speech from human affairs. And Paul uses it kind of apologetically. He says, he almost apologizes for bringing it up. I know this really doesn't fit to talk this way about God. But I'm trying to make a point, so follow with me. I give you an illustration of what's going on here. It's this kind of argument. An employee is fired by the owner of a company for embezzlement. 
So then this angry employee, the fired employee, sets fire to the plant. Well, after all the embers are done, the insurance adjuster comes. The insurance adjuster gives this valuation, and it's a million dollars more than the company is worth. And so the employee contacts the employer, who, and this employee is going on trial, but the employee says, hey, you know, you're profiting from this. I think you should drop, you should drop all charges and give me a portion of the profit that you're making. <laughs> that's kind of the argument that's going on here between Paul and the objector. And here's what Paul says, certainly not. If that were so, how could, how could God judge the world? If God can't judge in time and eternity, we will have total anarchy. God's righteous character demands judgment. If God refuses to judge sin, he would cease to be God. Righteous judgment is an attribute of a holy, perfect, sinless God. The point Paul making then is that man's sin only serves by way of sharp contrast to demonstrate the blinding holiness of God. This means that God in no way is unrighteous when he inflicts wrath. Well, not satisfied, the challenger has one more argument up his sleeve. One more way he disagrees with Paul in verse 7. So, someone might argue, this challenger, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory... Why am I still condemned a sinner? The point is not that simply God is, God's righteousness is demonstrated by my unrighteousness, but rather that my lying or my falsehood enhances, literally overflows or fills up the truth, and the result is God's glory. It's kind of this idea which is false that the end justifies the means. If I sin and God gets the glory, hey, it, he's better off and I shouldn't be judged, right? No. Finally, Paul says, why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just. In other words, if a person is going to argue that their sin enhances God's glory, then why not do more evil? It'd be kind of like, uh, kind of like saying, pray for sickness so that doctors will have a chance to heal people. Should we pray for people to get sick? No. Or... Pray for more disasters so ambulance drivers will have something to do. Crazy, right? It would be similar to a murderer saying to the court after his conviction, my conviction proves the system works. Therefore, I should be rewarded, not incarcerated. 
All these things are just demonstrating that men's arguments fall flat. God is righteous. We are not. It's worth mentioning that the Apostle Paul appears to be accused of preaching a gospel that leads to licentiousness. Paul, if you preach that, people are just going to send more. However, these allegations are wrong. Quite the opposite. While salvation may be simple, it's not easy. Everything in us wants to earn our salvation, earn our way to heaven. That's the human way. That's the inclination of mankind, which is why all other religions of the world have it to where how do you become close to God? How do you, how do you get saved? You live right. Christianity is different. Christianity says we've all done wrong. Therefore, Jesus Christ paid the penalty. But Paul, if you preach that, more people will sin. No, no. They will accuse, if you preach the gospel long enough, according to Romans and Galatians and the word of God, sooner or later you're going to hear somebody say, that's easy believism. Or cheap grace. German neo-Orthodox theologian coined that phrase about something entirely different, and that's been injected into this argument. But it fails to take into account two things. First of all, God's grace is not cheap, it's free. Let me say it again. God's grace is not cheap, it's free. Look at Romans 3.24. Being justified freely, yeah, by his grace. Is grace something you earn? No, grace is grace. It's what God gives to us. And I'm so glad he does. The rest of the verse goes, how does that happen? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's not God pays part and we pay part. It's God paid it all. And that leads us to number two. Grace is not cheap. It costs Jesus his life. In light of Jesus' sacrifice, you and I ought to live lives that are worthy. Not because we're trying to earn our way to heaven, but because God has extended his gracious hand to us. And we have our ticket. We have heaven guaranteed. God is faithful. Even if we fail in our faithfulness, God remains faithful. And that, friends, should motivate us to live better than anyone else. Scripture says, Grace teaches us to live holy lives. Let's absorb our mind in the grace of God found in the word of God with the result that we obey God and live lives worthy of him. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, will you do so? 
God is eternally faithful and righteous. The Bible teaches us that there is an appointed time for man to die once, and then the judgment. Now, friends, I don't know when your time is, and I bet you don't know when your time is. Therefore, isn't it a good idea for us to be prepared to receive the grace of God and know that we are standing in God's grace? And the way that we do that is acknowledge that God sent his son, Jesus, that he lived a perfect, righteous life, the only one to ever do so. And then he died on the cross. And all of my sin and all of your sin was put on Jesus. And he paid the ultimate price. The wages of sin is death. And so he died. And he extends that offer to whoever. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, everyone, that whoever believes in him should not perish. Friend, have you believed in him? If you haven't, today could be the day. Trust him in Jesus for your salvation, for forgiveness, and ultimately to be restored to God in heaven. And if you do that, please tell somebody here today so we can rejoice with you. Let's pray. Before going formally to the Lord, I want to give you just a moment to reflect in your own heart and mind. If you don't know, God is holy and we are not. Therefore, we need a mediator, someone who to stand in the gap between us and a righteous God. And that someone is Jesus. He loves us and he died for us. So trust him right now. Best you know how, put your faith in him. Now to the believer, what God did in sending his son to the cross is incredible. Being true, that should shape every word, thought, and deed. So to the believer I say, brothers and sisters, let's live holy lives. Let's respond to God and his holiness and his faithfulness by us learning to be more holy and more faithful, more like our God. So I challenge us to do that. Father God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the love that you have extended to us in Christ. Lord, what a blessing. And I just desire for everyone to come to know Jesus Christ personally as their Savior. And then, once they've done that, to begin a walk that you have for them, to walk in holiness. So I pray, Father, that would be on our forefront of our minds, that we live holy for Jesus Christ. I pray in his name. Amen. There we go. There we go. All right. Sorry about that. Would you stand with us? We're going to sing, Yet Not I, But Christ through me.